Good morning, church. How are we today? Good deal. Hey, it's Labor Day weekend. Um, you guys excited for a three-day weekend? Have any of you found that you're actually going to work more this weekend on things around the house than you normally would on a normal weekend? I know I do. Um, my wife, uh, I love her. She went to the Indiana Dunes State Park to go hiking yesterday, uh, and I painted and bought curtains. Um, so there's a window into my marriage. Um, she's out hiking. She sends me a text. She said, man, we just walked up on a snake, scared the snot out of us. And I'm like, what color curtains are going to look good in this room? Um, I am a man. Uh, and so um, my office at home looks really good. I thought I'd just let you know that. Um, but uh, I, I am really grateful that you guys would be here. I know Labor Day weekend is a, a prime opportunity to get away and to go do something else. And so I'm grateful that you guys would come and spend Sunday morning with us. Uh, if I have not met you, my name is Craig. I'm one of the pastors here at SCC. Uh, and I just want to say thank you for coming. I'm grateful to have you here. Um, we've been in the book of Galatians for two weeks. This is week three of our series, Plus Nothing. And uh, so far, uh, basically, we've made it through the first chapter. So two weeks, we made it through one chapter, which is a faster pace uh, than how long it took for us to get through the book of Exodus. Um, so we're, we're doing a little better there. Um, but we have been in Galatians for two weeks, and so far, uh, what we've learned is that the book of Galatians uh, really has one main idea, one theme that Paul is going to continue to hit, and it is this, that the gospel plus nothing equals everything, that Jesus plus nothing equals everything, that you do not need to add to the gospel. In fact, if you do, you actually change the gospel message, and it is no longer the gospel. It is no longer good news. And so, in the beginning of this letter, Paul uh, is writing to uh, the, the church in Galatia, which is in modern-day Turkey. We've learned that Paul was writing this letter to really just clear up what the gospel is. Like I said, he wanted to clarify. And he goes on to share uh, his story of how he came to Christ and how Christ has changed him. And so, in his own words, Paul says, man, I was extremely religious. He said, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age, and I was extremely zealous or fanatical for the traditions of my fathers. I persecuted the church and tried to destroy it. But when he who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me, right, when God saved him through Jesus, it pleased the Father. You see in the book of Acts, uh, we see this scene where Paul is actually headed to this town called Damascus, this big city, and he's actually on his way there to persecute the church. His goal is to just destroy what is happening in Damascus. He is so anti this church movement that he's going to stomp it out, and God literally pulls him uh, on the side of the road and changes his entire life. Jesus reveals himself to Paul an amazing, amazing story in the book of Acts. But uh, Paul here in Galatians is writing about this experience. He's saying, you know what, I had this encounter with Jesus on this road, and I didn't immediately consult with anybody, and I didn't even go to where the apostles were, but instead I went to Arabia, into, uh, into Damascus for three years. So Jesus ha or Paul has this experience with Jesus and then heads out into the wilderness for three years where he wrestles with who he was, he wrestles with kind of who God was. He wrestles with his belief system, like this whole thing that he's been so fanatical about. How could I be so wrong in that? Like literally, I was on my way to go stomp out a church, and God saved me and stopped me from doing that. Like how could I have been so wrong? He had to wrestle with what God was calling him to. 
But after those three years, he went to Jerusalem and he visited with Peter and with James and he actually began preaching the gospel in Cilicia and in uh, Syria. And people heard of who he was and who he is now. I love this. It says, they glorified God because of me, right? And last week, Pastor Brad talked about this idea of a former life, that through Jesus, that there is a life that you have before you experience Christ and a life that you have after you experience Christ and how who you are is no longer who you were. This idea of a former life. And I think most of us uh, have heard a little bit about Paul, especially here at church, we talk about him, right? But what I want you to know is that on one hand, Paul was more religious than any church kid Sunday school teacher, the Pope, like this dude, if he went to Awana, he would crush everyone. Had all the buttons, the ribbons, the sashes, like this dude knew everything. And on one hand, he's this super religious guy. And on the other hand, he's one of the most vile and wicked human beings, just murdering people for their belief. One man, overly religious and extremely wicked. And when people heard of his former life, When people heard of who he was and who he was now, they glorified God because of him. Church, there is no such thing as too far gone for God. And so Paul starts laying out kind of this point of this letter, and he starts to contend that there is one gospel, and that if you tweak it or you change it, it is no longer the gospel. It is no longer good news. And so he spells out what the gospel is. And we find it in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, the gospel is that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day. And Paul tells us in Galatians, he said, I didn't even hear this from some other man, right? Like, what I am telling you is not an idea that I heard from someone else. I'm not even regurgitating another pastor's sermon. Like, what I am telling you came straight from Jesus through this revelation on the road to Damascus. This is the gospel This is the good news, that Jesus came, that Jesus died, and that Jesus rose. And so now Paul is writing this letter to the Galatians, telling them, if you add anything to that, it is no longer the gospel. And so as we dig into chapter 2, we're going to be there for a few weeks, uh, and we're going to see that the, the, the chapter is broken up into these three kind of sections. And what Paul is doing here is he's addressing three different themes. And the first is legalism, the second is hypocrisy, and the third is faith. And so in the beginning chapter that we're going to be talking about today, we're, we're going to dig in and look at this idea of legalism, which is right behavior with wrong belief. You do a lot of good things. You do a lot of the right things, but you do it for the wrong reasons, or you do it with the wrong belief. And then next week, Mike is going to look at hypocrisy, and he's going to look at wrong behavior with right belief, right? I think most of us have probably met people that are like, oh, I totally believe in Jesus, and they're out getting hammered every single weekend and doing what they want, and they're like, this is awesome, right? Jesus forgives me. It's hypocrisy. It's wrong behavior, but with right belief. And ultimately, what leads out of those is faith, which is right behavior with right belief, where what you say you believe and the way that you act, they line up. So this morning, we're really going to hammer on this idea of legalism, It's going to be really fun, apparently to no one else. Uh, And so uh, the last time that I was up here teaching a couple weeks ago, I had a lathe on stage. um, And since then, it's kind of like, well, what power tool do you bring up now? Um, And this morning, we're going to talk a lot about circumcision. And so I left the power tools at home because that would get real awkward, right? Um, Just warning you. So 
Uh, we are going to be in Galatians chapter 2, verse 1. If you guys have a Bible, uh, open up to Galatians. It's in the second half of the Bible. It's in the New Testament. Uh, we're going to have the words on the screen. If you've got your phone or a tablet, open up to the Version app or the Bible app. Uh, we'd love to have you follow along with us. Galatians 1, 1. It says, Then after 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem, this time with Barabbas. Barnabas, wrong name. I went up with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. And I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure that I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. Now, super random sentence, right? Three sentences. You're like, Paul's going to Jerusalem, taking some guys with him. He's going to have a meeting. He's running a race, and a dude that went with him doesn't want to be circumcised, right? This makes no sense. There's a lot here, so let me explain. Uh, Fourteen years has gone by since Paul has experienced Jesus on the road to Damascus. It's been 14 years, right? Some time has passed. And he's been preaching the gospel, and in doing so, he's actually come into conflict with a small group of Jewish Christians uh, that uh, are coming along and saying, you know what? What you're preaching is half right, but there's more that needs to be added to it. And so what these folks would say, these folks that Paul would refer to as the Judaizers, they would say, you know, we do believe in Jesus. We totally believe in Jesus. We believe that he died for our sins. We believe that he rose from the grave. But ultimately, we also believe that he has given us the law for specific reasons, and those reasons don't go away as soon as we uh, convert to Christ. And so really, in order to follow Jesus, it is Jesus, it's his life, death, resurrection, and circumcision and dietary laws. Now, for us today, we're like, what on earth does circumcision and a diet have to do with following Jesus, right? This doesn't make a ton of sense to us, but for Jews, for especially Jews at this point in history, circumcision and the dietary laws were a part of the law that God had given them. And so, as God's chosen people, right, as the Jews that were set apart from all the other nations, they were given a way of life that they were supposed to hold to. A part of that was circumcision, It marked cleanliness. It was a physical representation of them being a clean people. Dietary laws, it was a list of what they should and shouldn't eat, what they could and couldn't eat, what was considered clean and not clean. And so uh, circumcision in the dietary laws marked them as a different people than everyone else, right? So these folks are saying, we totally believe in Jesus, but we believe that you need to do these other things as well. And so Paul is going into all of these ancient cities, he's preaching the gospel, he's setting up churches, he's raising leaders, he's moving on to the next community, and this group is coming in after him and kind of eroding what he is saying. So they would come in and they would say, yeah, you know, Paul's kind of right, but um, it is Jesus, it is his life, it is his death, it is his resurrection, but on top of that, it's also circumcision and the dietary laws. And so after all of these years of preaching the gospel, Paul is finally going to confront this group. He's going to confront uh, with the apostles, with the other teachers, the other leaders of the early church, and just say, all right, what's the deal? Is what I'm preaching good? Because I don't want to just spin my wheels, right? So I want to make sure that what I am teaching is what you guys are teaching as well. Now, it's interesting here because Paul says, uh, I had a revelation, right? Paul isn't going to see the early church leaders because he's getting called to the principal's office, right? They aren't saying, okay, you're not doing what is right. You need to come uh, and we need to correct you. In fact, he's saying, I heard from Jesus that I need to go and talk to these leaders and that we need to settle this thing out. 
And so that's what Paul's doing after this revelation. He's going to speak with uh, some that are considered the pillars of the faith. And so uh, Paul uh, goes, and uh, his whole goal is to clarify what the gospel is, how it should be taught, and he takes with him two men. The first is Barnabas, who is a Jew. Barnabas, uh, upon hearing the gospel, literally sold everything that he owned, gave all the money to the early church, uh, and, and they actually changed his name. He was originally born with the name of Joseph, and the early church said, you have actually been such an encouragement to us in your steps of faith. We're going to name you son of, of encouragement. That's literally what his name, Barnabas, means, is son of encouragement. He was very highly uh, res- respected and esteemed in the early church, and so Paul, going uh, to say, basically settle his case, says, you know what, I'm going to take this guy with me as a witness He's seen me preach to the Gentiles. He's seen what has taken place. This guy is going to be a great witness to back up everything that I'm saying. Now, on the other hand, he takes Titus, who is a Gentile. And and last week, we talked about how you had the Jews, God's covenant chosen people, and then everyone else, and everyone else was considered Gentiles. So he takes Titus with him. Probably grew up in Indiana, loves bacon, loves tenderloin. Uh, He is not into the dietary law, has not been circumcised. He's like, I am not Jewish whatsoever but I'm madly in love with Jesus. And so as Paul goes to this uh, council, as he goes to approach the apostles, he takes a very, very Jewish man and a very, very Gentile man to go and be his witnesses as he basically uh, proclaims his case. Verse 4. says, This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. This is some serious language. False believers have infiltrated our ranks to spy on our freedom and to make us slaves. So why did these folks believe that it was Jesus plus the law for salvation? I mean, there's really two reasons. The first is that without the law to make people moral, they will not naturally become moral, right? So what their argument is saying that is if, if you say you are saved by grace through faith alone, if you remove the fear of hell, if you remove the fear of guilt and damnation, people aren't going to fly straight. They aren't going to do what they're supposed to do. People need to have a book that calls them out and tells them what they're doing wrong. You need to tell people how they should be. The other argument is that the law was holy, right? So often we talk about the law and it kind of gets this bad rap that it wasn't necessary. It was 100% necessary. God created it. It was good. He gave it to the people for a reason, right? The law was divine. The law was given by God. And for over 2,000 years, the law had been the guide for God's covenant people, the Jews, to uh, experience the goodness of God. Here are things to do and things to stay away from. Why? For your good and for the glory of God. Was also a long, long list of things to do and not to do that would make you right with God. And the entire point of the law was to tell people, you're never going to be able to do this. You're never going to be able to get your head around this. You're never going to be able to follow this completely. And so the law really has every right to tell me that I must love God, right? If God has created me as my creator, he has the right to tell me what's up. That's why parents, you're supposed to tell your kids what's up, right? You created them, you parent them. 
the law has every right to tell me that I must love God, right? That I must love my neighbor. The Ten Commandments, here we go. That I should not worship things that are not God. That I should not covet another man's wife. That I should obey my parents. That I should not steal, right? God has every right to tell me those things. He created me. He said, here's the universe that I have placed you in. Here's how things are supposed to go. You see, the, right, the law has every right to reveal to me the commands of God and, and that God uh, has created me to operate in the universe. But the reality is that the law has no ability to save me from my failures to obey the law. The law is diagnostic. It's not a cure. Now, I know that we've used this terminology several times, but uh, if you look at the law, the law acts a lot like an MRI machine. If you're sick, if you go to the hospital and they throw you in this tiny little tube and they run scans of your body, what's the point? It's for it to tell you that you're sick. It's to point out what the problem is. But you could get in that tube and they could scan you 3,000 times and you're never going to get better. You're just going to have 3,000 points of proof that tell you that you're sick. That was the point of the law. And I think that for most of us, honestly, we wrestle with walking in the joy of Christ because we're too busy looking at the scans. All right? We look at the law and we say, I didn't do that. I can't keep that. I'm not going to do that. And we just keep looking at the diagnosis. We keep looking at the scans. And the scans are always going to show you that you're sick. It's always going to show you that you fall short, that you're a liar, that you're not holy enough, that you don't measure up, that you're not good enough for the forgiveness of Jesus. That's why we constantly run back to the same sins over and over and over again. It's what the law does. It shows us that we need healing. But the good news is that Jesus is the cure. Right? The law is diagnostic. It is not a cure. The law is diagnostic, but Jesus is the cure. The law is good. The law is perfect. The law is holy. The law existed for a reason, but Jesus fulfilled the law. Which means it's time that we, as the church, stop looking at the scans. It's time that we quit moping around because we're sick, and it's time that we celebrate that through Jesus we've been cured. I mean, my guess is the reason that most people don't truly pursue Jesus is because you think he's disappointed in you. He's not sitting in heaven with his feet up looking at you saying, man, what a joke. I died for that guy. No. He looks at every single one of us and says, worth it, worth it. Man, if only they could see how much I love them. They're mine. I bet that there are people in this room right now that are like, there is no way that it is as simple as knowing Jesus and loving him. There has to be a list of things to do. And the reality is, no, there's not, right? If you start pressing into Jesus, he will change your tastes. He will change your values. He will change your heart, right? You can't change your heart. How often are you like, okay, I need to stop doing this, and you modify your behavior for a short period of time, and then you're like, wow, that was way too hard. I can't keep doing that. And people that can modify their behavior for a long time, they turn into super self-righteous people that are really, really quick to point out everything that you've done wrong, but they don't see their own shortcomings. Only Jesus can change your heart. You just have to continue leaning into him. Verse 5. It says, we did not give in to them for a moment. 
so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. So Paul, with Titus and Barnabas, he meets with Peter and James and John. He meets with uh, the leaders of the early church. They're called pillars. They were held in high esteem. They were kind of a big deal. And Paul's brushing it off. I met with them, but they're not going to add to my message because my message came straight from Jesus. Here's the deal. Why would I worship the servants when the master's in the room? I love that. The level of their influence isn't going to change the gospel message that I preach. Verse 7. This is where things change. We start to see some unity here. It says, On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, another name for Peter, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised or to the Jews. So after all of this, they've laid out their arguments and they all come to the same conclusion, right? We are preaching the same message, but our methods are different based on our audience, Right? They were unified in their understanding of the gospel and the roles that they were to play in spreading the gospel message. As the, the message of the gospel can never change, but the methods used to communicate it will always change. Billy Graham's crusades probably wouldn't fly today. They were huge in their day. If I went over to KidZone and sat in the kindergarten classroom and started talking about spiritual MRIs, kids would have no clue what I'm talking about. It's because the message I'm communicating and the method that I'm communicating are different. I can communicate the same message to everybody in this room and I can change the method so that it's appropriate for you to hear and to understand. We have several partner ministries throughout the country and the world and every single one of them is gonna use different methodology to communicate the gospel, right? Kate and Rachel down in Brazil, they're gonna teach about Jesus in a different manner than we do here because of the context that they're in. Jordan Ryan in inner city Chicago is going to use language that I don't understand because that's the context that he is in. Same with Ben Locke on the campus of Indiana State, right? College kids use weird words. Lit and fire and savage and stuff I don't know anymore because I'm too old, right? There's their own culture, their own context. The message can never change, but the methods always will. Verse 10. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing that I had been eager to do all along. It's interesting that they tack this on, right? Is it the gospel plus serving other people? No. They're saying, here's the deal. We're unified in our understanding of the gospel. We are unified in this message of Jesus that he came, that he died, and that he rose. We see that this message is valuable for Gentiles and for Jews. But here's the deal. We're living in a hurting world. Right now, there's a massive famine that's taking place in the first century world. There are wars that are taking place that are affecting folks in Jerusalem and Judea. Persecution continues to be on the rise at this point in history. And so uh, Christians that are farmers, that are uh, traders, that are um, serving in, in any kind of market or merchant or whatever, people stopped buying their goods because they were Christians. 
will take away your livelihood and it gets a little harder to feed your family. Add on to that the call of Jesus to, to, to care for widows and for orphans. In the middle of the Roman Empire, they didn't care about the lonely and the lost. So what the apostles are saying here and what, what Paul is saying, oh man, I'm all on board is, we're unified in the gospel and we're unified in how we love people. It doesn't matter what background you came out of. We are one unified church. It's a beautiful picture. And so after reading through all of this, right, it begs to ask the question, right, what is it that you have added to the gospel? What have I added to the gospel? What expectations or extra things have you added to the gospel message? Maybe they're things that you didn't add yourself, but they're things that you were taught, right? Salvation comes through Jesus plus what? Is it going to church every Sunday? Is it being in a small group? Is it serving regularly? Right? These are all awesome things. We tell you these are things that we encourage you to do. But if you're in six small groups so that you're only hanging around Christian people and only doing church things, you kind of add it on to the gospel. The gospel plus only church people. That's not what you were called to. Jesus plus voting for a certain political party. Jesus plus holding a certain social view. In some churches, it's Jesus plus we only sing hymns or Jesus plus we only read from the King James Bible. I think what's running rampant right now is Jesus plus I have to feel guilty and shameful when I mess up. That's killing our culture. The list goes on and on. You see how damaging it can be? I think Jesus... When he comes, he says, you know what, come to me all who are weary and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. He didn't say come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I'll add to your list. That's not the message of Jesus. Because Jesus plus nothing equals everything. I failed algebra one twice. I can get behind that math problem, right? Plus nothing. Plus nothing. Now, I uh, have shared bits and pieces of my story when I teach, and I'm sure I will uh, in the future, but um, I grew up going to church, uh, and I'm telling this with, with grace, um, so I'm not coming off dogging my childhood, um, but I grew up going to church. Like, if the doors were open, my family was there. Uh, and so my parents were on the church council. My, my parents sat uh, in, in the choir, so they were at choir practice. I had two older sisters. They went to confirmation, so they were there. Whenever my family was at church, I was at church. Uh, and so we were at uh, the first service on Sunday mornings at 8 in the morning because they're horrible people. Um, oh, we were there at 8 in the morning. And then sometimes you had service on Wednesday night, so I was there on Wednesday night, and sometimes you had service on Thursday, so I was there on Thursday, and sometimes there was service on Friday, so I was there on Friday. And I'm pretty sure we drove by on Saturday just to make sure nothing was going on on Saturday. Uh, And so uh, my family, man, we were church people. And I grew up uh, sitting in pews, and I would stand up when I was told to, and I would sit down when I was told to, And I would stand in a room full of people and we would say the same thing in response to something that the pastor said. 
and I watched people walk around in robes and, and they had specific lingo that they used and, and then I got into confirmation and there was particular things that I had to memorize, right? And I didn't know there was two versions of the Lord's Prayer, right? And I had to memorize the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed and I had to know all of this stuff. And I remember getting into a fight with my mom and I'm like, what is the point of all of this? Like, what does this do for me? And I honestly, I don't remember her answer, right? But I definitely remember walking away thinking, like, in order for God to love me, I have to do all of this. Like, I have to dress up, right? Like, why can't I just wear blue jeans? Well, that's not dressy enough, right? So we settled on black jeans. So now I could wear black jeans to church, right? And the whole time I'm just like, I don't understand what I'm doing here. I'm like 12 years old, right? What punk kid is going to argue with their parents? Every 12-year-old kid, right? And so uh, I get to the point where I'm like, I don't believe in God. And we had a full-on intervention with the senior pastor of the church, and it was really weird and awkward. Uh, And I finished. I went through confirmation. I got confirmed. And at that point, they said, you're an adult in the church. You can start giving to the church if you want. If you want to leave, you can. You're considered an adult. Peace. I was done. I was over it. So I got a job working at a grocery store on the weekends, so I had a reason to not be at church on Sundays. Then I got invited to go to youth group by a buddy of mine in a real sneak attack way uh, and ended up going to to youth group with him a few times. And uh, eventually they said, hey, we're we're going on this mission trip to Canada. Uh, We're going to Toronto. And I was like, oh, cool. Like, that's a vacation from my family. Mom, Dad, I want to go on this trip. And so I went. And I showed up on a trip looking to get away from my family, and I was with like 50 other kids that were there to serve people. You kind of feel like a butthole at that point. Uh, and so um, that week, man, that changed some things. And I remember sitting in this upper room in this church in Toronto, Canada, and one of the, the guys that was working the, the site for YouthWorks, he started walking through the gospel, and he started talking about the reality that Jesus came and that Jesus died, and that Jesus rose, and that it was for every single one of us. That it was this personal thing that took place. And I'm sitting in this room, and I'm hearing this, and I'm like, I've always heard about this God, and I've heard about this Jesus and his cross, and I've heard about this weird ghost spirit thing. Like, he did that for me? And I can wear whatever kind of pants I want? And I don't have to sing hymns to an organ? Like I don't have to stand up and sit down and I don't have to memorize all this stuff? No. And that night, I gave my life to Christ. Today is September 1st, uh, which to most of us doesn't mean anything, but this marks six years since my wife and I moved to Shelbyville to be a part of what God was doing in this community and to be a part of what God is doing in this church. And I'm wearing blue jeans. Man, I love the church. I love going to church. But it's not because I think God is going to love me more because I go. It's because I know that God loves me that I want to go. Anytime that we add to the gospel, whatever it may be, Jesus plus how you dress, Jesus plus memorizing this creed, Jesus plus knowing this prayer to pray, Jesus plus, anytime you add to it, you are robbing the gospel. Jesus plus anything makes the gospel nothing.
what have you added to the gospel? What is it that you believe? What is it that you've been taught? What has been added to this message that is robbing you from experiencing freedom and experiencing the love of God? Because I can tell you this, God did not send his only son to die on a cross because you went to church, because you gave money when it was necessary or when it was good, because you did a good deed. No, he sent his son to die and to raise because he loves you regardless of what you do. That is the gospel, that you had nothing to do with it, and God had everything to do with it. That's the good news. So this morning, like every Sunday morning, we have the opportunity to respond. And we're going to take time and we're going to sing a song. And we've got communion. There's a lot of ways that you guys can respond. And so I'm going to invite the band up this morning. And uh, if you are sitting here and you're like, man, like I've definitely been adding stuff to the gospel. For me personally, I've been teaching my kids something that is not the gospel. And you're wrestling with that. It took Paul three years in the wilderness to wrestle through some stuff. Take five minutes and sit in your chair and do it this morning. Maybe you've got something going on in life right now that's just heart, like it's just hurting you. It's heavy. And there's people by the prayer room, there's people in the back of the room that would love to pray with you. They'd love to hear what you're going through. They would love to step into your pain. They would love to help carry that load with you and to pray with you. So go talk to them. And we have the privilege to take communion. I remember uh, growing up at the church that I went to, I remember uh, every Sunday that the communion was going on, the dude in the robe would get up and, and he would say, you know, on the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and he broke it, giving it to his disciples, right? And I remember I read that in the Bible for the first time and I was like, no way, like you didn't make that up, that's in here? Yeah. It wasn't this big man-made thing. Like I love going to my parents' church when I get the opportunity because I understand what it all means. Guys, we have the opportunity to take bread and to drink from the cup that symbolizes Jesus' body broken and his blood poured out on the cross for you. It's an amazing privilege. So if you're here today and you're saying, I believe in Jesus, my faith is in Christ, this is for you. If you're saying, I, I'm not there yet, just stay in your seat. That's totally okay. But as a church, let's take time to respond to what we've heard. Let's take time to respond to God. Let's take time to respond to the gospel. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to respond. Jesus, thank you for who you are. Jesus, thank you that you came, and that you died, and that you rose. Jesus, thank you for that good news, and thank you for what it's done in my life, and for what it's done in the lives of so many at this church. God, I pray for those that have never made a decision for Christ today, that, that they would, that they would see their need for you, that they would feel how loved they are by you, and that this morning they too would say, you know what, I believe that Jesus came for me, I believe that he died for me, and I believe that he rose for me. And for those of you that have already made that decision, I pray that all of us would wrestle with this idea of what have I added to the gospel? How has that affected my relationship with God? How has that affected my relationship with other people? How has that affected what I've been teaching my kids or my friends? 
But God, I pray that you would do an amazing heart work this morning in all of us. And we're grateful for who you are and for what you've done. And I pray that our worship will be honoring to you this morning. In your name, amen. Let's respond.